and welcome everyone. I am Caleb Flaggy and this is the Made in Gainesville podcast. On this show, you'll hear stories and get insights from business owners and leaders from across the nation that have ties to Gainesville. On this episode, we will hear from Andy Stark. Andy will share his impressive resume working for Gainesville-based tech companies as well as his time in the Navy. Andy worked his way from a tech support employee to president and owner of Genmar, a cloud-based dental lab tech company which was sold to EasyRx earlier this year. We'll also discuss innovation, taking risks with startups, and how to brand Gainesville to retain UF grads and entrepreneurs. Enjoy! Let's start with a listener question. What does it mean to go fetch me 12 feet of water line? So uh, the Navy has a lot of traditions. Um, one of them is uh, when a new person shows up in your shop, you, you kind of, I don't want to use the word haze, but you, you razz them a little. You send them on you know, fool's errands to go do things. And um, you would often send someone down to the bosun's locker and say, hey, I need a, I need a bosun's punch. You know, and they'd come back looking at you like, yeah, there's no such thing as a bosun's punch. Or go get me, you know, 12 feet of water line. Same thing. It's, you know, there's no such thing. When there's water line, but it's not something you pick up. It's obviously the water line on the ship. So that's what, that's what that came from. There's just a lot of examples of, uh, you know, being asked to go do things. And then, and I'll, probably all military service has it, but the Navy had some interesting ones because of, you know, we're at sea, we're on a ship. And Stuck so, on the boat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, why did you join the Navy? Um, so after high school, I had no clue what I wanted to do. Um, I actually went to uh, went to school not far from here. I graduated from Williston High School. Um, I was just on the drive over here. I was just calculating. I went to five different schools as growing up, and uh, Williston is where I landed. And when I when I left high school, I spent one semester at Santa Fe and just realized this was going to be a continuation of high school in my mind. I uh, wasn't a very good student. I just didn't really focus on applying myself. But um, So the Navy just felt like the right thing to get out and, you know, figure out what this world's about and who I am and what I wanted to do. And, you know, I, um, I loved being around the ocean. So I just felt like, you know, the Navy couldn't put me anywhere that I wouldn't be around an ocean, which turns out it's actually not true. They can put you in some pretty wild locations. But, um, but yeah, joined the Navy after high school, went to basic training in Great Lakes, Illinois in the middle of February. And I remember getting off the bus thinking, what have I done? I mean, this is the coldest place I've ever been in my life. And um, uh, just, you know, left there after basic, went to uh, Vieques, Puerto Rico, actually, uh, which was a really interesting place to be uh, right out of the Navy, right out of boot camp because it's in the Caribbean. You know, you've got uh, 25 guys at the time that we were not integrated uh, co-ed but 25 guys down there on a Caribbean island you know running amok in some respects and uh, you know 19 20 years old having a good time you have any wild stories from being on the island yeah I guess I do but I'd have to qualify uh, you know uh, do not try this at home I guess is probably the what I would say um, you know we would our job down there was to manage um, an ordnance storage facility. So we had all this explosive ordnance on one end of the island, and the Navy operated a live impact training uh, range on the other end. And so most of our days were out in the magazines taking temperatures, so we were making sure that they didn't overheat or get too hot. Um, but then we were done by 2 or 3 in the afternoon. We'd be at, you know, down at the beach, and 
remember one weekend we had a little little bonfire activity going on and we um someone got the bright idea of coating ourselves with insect repellent because you know there are a lot of mosquitoes out but then he had the idea of diving through the fire with all this insect repellent on and i just remember watching this kid go through the top of the flames come out the other side like a little ball of flame and he got up and all of his hair was singed off his 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 body so (laughs) how has your time in the navy shaped your view of business so i think one thing i learned um was what it meant to be part of something bigger than just myself you know just my interest and you know what i'm after um i had been on football teams and basketball teams so i had some experience with that but um the navy really you know, taught me that you're going to be you're going to be doing a job. You're going to be doing a task that is really insignificant in some respects in your mind, but it's part of something a lot bigger. And I remember distinctly remember hunched over a, a commode, scrubbing the the metal on the back, just polishing the metal. In the navy, they call it polishing the bright work. So bright work is any exposed metal that's on a ship, and they because it's the the corrosive atmosphere you're in, you have to keep it polished well they extended that to bathrooms as well so we're you know we were told to go polish the bright work in the commode and I was just thinking to myself this is not what I want to do the rest of my life but it is what I'm doing right now so it's my job so I'm doing this Um, so it taught me you know embrace what's in front of you whatever level you're at um, get the job done and then um, aspire to something bigger and that's really how I looked at it it's like I'm here for four years. That was my commitment. I have a job to do for four years, whatever it is they tell me. I may not like it, but I'm going to have to do it and then aspire to something else. So that's what I did. I went in the military not knowing what I wanted to do, came out, came back to the University of Florida, and um, was actually a much better student as a result of that. Um, did a lot. Yeah, I, I did better after the military than I would have done coming right out of high school for sure. Now, once you finished your four-year commitment, did you have any thoughts of staying in or going to school and staying in? I did, actually. Um, you know, I, I'd considered maybe getting my degree, and some of the um, officers I worked for were encouraging me to do a, 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 what they called enlist, enlisted commissioning program. So you're enlisted, you go back to get your degree, and then come back. Um, but I decided, you know, the Navy wasn't a long-term career for me. Um, I got out of it what I wanted, which was, you know, a little more maturity, grew up a little. Um, uh, GI Bill was great. I came back to the University of Florida, hardly paid for any tuition. I mean, they, uh, and I was working at the time, and, um, but it, it did give me opportunity that I would not have had, but I did not really seriously consider going back after school. So, so the bulk of your working experience has been at Genmar. Uh, how did you get involved with that company? Yeah, so Genmar uh, is a software company based in Gainesville. It was founded in 1986 by um, a gentleman named Louis Marchand. And while I was an undergrad, I responded to an ad in the Alligator for a tech support position. And I went in um, dressed in a tie and suit, thinking, you know, that's what you do when you interview for a software company. Well, this guy's sitting there at his desk in shorts and a flip you know, t-shirt and flip-flops. Um, needless to say, he hired me, you know, right then. Uh, he figured, I, you know, with the military experience, coming in in a suit, obviously know what I'm, you know, you know, know what I'm doing. Um, so 
worked as a support technician with Genmar for four or five years, just answering you know, tech support calls, trying to help out um, as best I could on implementation. Um, but at the time, I uh, you know, had a son, and I was on the road probably 50% of the time. So I needed to um, you know, transition to something that was more stable. So that led me to a company called Mindsolve here in Gainesville, which is a startup uh, that I worked at for two years. So how was your experience at Mindsolve? And were you there when they made the sale to sum total? Um, I was not. I, uh, Mindsolve is a great company to work for. Uh, I learned a lot about um, you know, SaaS applications. Um, you know, Mindsolve founded by Charles Stedham, Dan Bacabella, and Jeff Lyons. You know, great founders, great people to work for. Um, I left and went back to Genmar as the general manager right before they sold to some total. So why did you go back to Genmar and not stay at Mindsolve? Uh, so the founder of Genmar uh, called me one day, and he had just landed really the biggest dental lab in the world as a, as a customer, and he just needed um, someone else to help him out manage the company, so he hired me back as uh, general manager. So you said you were hired as an undergrad, left briefly, came back as a general manager, and you eventually worked your way up to be the president. How did you navigate that upward trajectory? Um, not very well, probably. You know, a lot of seat of the pants stuff. Um, I remember developers used to hate when I would go on site to talk to a customer and come back to them because they would just throw the development cycle off. You know, you know it's, can we make this change? Can we do this? Because it really was a lot of... Um, you know, seat of the pants management. I didn't, you know, I had no real background in managing people, uh, but I tried to do what I thought was right for the customer. And working in support, that's really where I learned that, you know, that's where I learned to, to really do what I could because they're calling you. They don't, you know, they don't want to be on the phone with you. They're having a problem. They're having a bad day. So you do what you can to make their day better. And, um, when it came to you know managing people, managing developers, sometimes I carry that over into well, stop what you're doing, let's make this change because the customer is asking for it, and that's not always the best thing for for your product, for your market as a whole. Well, developers they can kind of be notoriously hard to manage to begin with, aren't they? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got lots of different, I guess, in any um, discipline, but in de- development especially is a lot of time alone spent at a computer. Um, you know, we, uh, Genmar was a head of bricks and mortars office for years, and then I realized one day that we were all sitting in front of our computers and not really doing a lot of interaction face-to-face in offices. So why are we doing it? Why not just everyone work from home? So, so you transitioned your workforce into you know, mostly working from home. How did that transition go? Did you find it to be more... You would get more production out of the employees, or um, so. Sometimes it's hard to measure developers' actual output. I mean, it can be that they spend you know a day working on a problem that really is solved with five lines of code, or it could be you know if you just look at pure output of how many lines of code did you write, that's the wrong metric too. Um, so I feel like developers and support people, you know, they I think giving them that space. Uh, giving them that quality of life where they could, you know, go to work in their, you know, pajamas and, and slippers if they wanted to, was really appreciated. And early on, we had some employees who, you know, because of life situations, either they needed to move out of Gainesville or um, needed to stay home with a child. With a child, so they appreciated that. Um, so it was a really learning as we went. You know, 
how to how to manage a remote workforce and um, developers who like that um, you know sitting at their computer at three in the morning and writing code you know we didn't really care when you did the work we wanted you available during core hours to answer questions participate in in meetings but if you wanted to work late or wanted to work early uh, we didn't care uh, can you tell me about some innovations that you made at uh, Genmar? I noticed that you had MainHub on your resume here. Can you tell me what that yeah, is? Yeah, so MainHub was a, a side project that we um, worked on. We were really trying to create a, a product that would reach you know, outside the dental laboratory market. And so if you think about it, any time you have equipment or um, you know, you know, let's say a vehicle, for instance, uh, when did you rotate the tires last? When did you change oil? Well, oil changes, some of these cars will tell you when to change oil, but anything you need to schedule periodic maintenance for, or if something breaks down, um, if, if something were broken and you wanted to record what you did to fix it, uh, how much you spent on that, uh, what were the parts that you replaced, it was really a, a place to record all of, the, uh, all of that and be able to report on how much you're spending on maintenance you know, annually for pieces of equipment. Um, and then to be reminded when your scheduled maintenance is due. So that's what MainHub was. We since rolled that into our uh, Visual DLP um, offering, so it's it's all kind of one package now. Seems like it would be good for even just you know consumer market. Sure. Yeah, we we definitely considered launching a consumer uh, facing product to you know help people remember when they changed their air filter last and when they should change it. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely. I think anytime, anytime you can have technology help you remember something, that's a, that's a win. So. so Genmar was sold to EZRX fairly recently. You'd work yourself up you know, to president there after working about 15 years at the company. How was that transition? Was it emotional or nostalgic letting the company go? Are you still involved? Yeah, I'm still involved. So in end of 2018, well, let me backtrack a little bit. So Genmar been around for quite a while, 30-something years, uh, dental laboratory management software that was sold traditionally as an on-premise system. So it was installed um, at the labs on their computers. In 2015, uh, I decided that we really needed to start making the transition to a cloud offering, started development of our new product called Visual DLP. And, you know, that's a that's a pretty big undertaking to take something that's been in the market for 20-something years and try to rewrite it and re-engineer it to, um, to a cloud offering. And the, the real challenge there was that when something's been around that long, it does everything to ev- for everyone. It's got a lot of features. And so we wanted to synthesize what was important um, to our customers in this new, pro- new product. Um, so beginning in 2017, we launched Visual DLP, um, had some success but rolling it out. Um, but I realized that our market was really changing. I mean, dental laboratories were not the same. They didn't have the same um, requirements when it came to measuring, for instance, employee productivity the same way. They still are interested in that, but they still, you know, that there, there are different ways to, to get that same information now. So it was a challenge to sell the same way we did. And now in a cloud product, you, you, you're selling a completely different uh, way. I mean, no longer are you having these large upfront, you know, installations that take six months. You're trying to scale this thing, so you want to. It has to be a quick onboarding. You need to be able to train quickly. Um, so, 
we also we were looking at ways to scale, but also how to tap into a bigger market. So dental laboratories, you know, seven, eight years ago, there were 14,000 of them. Now there are about six, I think about 4,000 of them. And so we looked at ways to tap into really our customer's customer, which is the office, the dental office, a dentist. So we were approached in 2018 by a company called EasyRx, who does a practice-facing, dental practice-facing online prescription. And it seemed like a great fit for us. I mean, they had, uh, they were also a remote workforce, 100% remote. So culturally, we would uh, share a lot of the same processes. And um, so we, we, we executed that transaction in July of this year. And I've stayed on as uh, the chief technology officer of EZRX. So I'm working now on integrating our visual DLP product with EZRX, the practice-facing solution. Now, before this happened, you had purchased Genmar from the original founders. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. So I'm sure the sale was, you know, fairly beneficial for you. Do you have any advice for people weighing the option of, do I go to work for this new company with more unknowns in exchange for equity and a chance for a big exit? Or do I go work for a well-established company and potentially get a higher salary right out of the gate, more stability, yeah, et cetera? I, I think that depends on your stage of life. And, you know, I, I'd like to think that the, you know, for instance, I have a 17-year-old son and I tell him, you know, in the next 10 years, Take risks, right? Take those risks that could lead to big payouts for you. Um, those of us like myself who are further along, I mean, I'm looking for more stability. Um, so, anyone who's weighing that option, I think you need to understand what your, you know, what your runway is for, and what you're looking to get out of it. I mean, if you want the stability, then yeah, take a, a higher salary. But if you're, if you have the ability to, to, you know, stomach that risk, then I think options and, and equity are probably the better route. Since you've worked at companies that have made a lot of innovations, I'm curious if you look at the world as an innovator. And in day-to-day life, do you take things kind of for the way they are, or are you constantly seeing solutions or identifying things that can be improved on? Yeah, I think, I don't know if I'm an innovator, but I think I definitely look at the world in in terms of, you know, what is the design? How can you improve that? How can you you know, solve a, a problem. Um, you know, I think there's this, I've seen this trend in, you know, building, you know, creating engineers and creating technology oriented um, college graduates who don't have the ability. They're very good at the scientific concepts, but they're not very good at problem solving. Um, they're not very good at design. They're not very, and I don't know what really causes that. I don't know where, if that was, you know, taking music and arts out of education. I, mean, you know, I know that's been a, a controversy, but I feel like there is, a, there is something there when it comes to um, looking at the world in sort of one dimension um, and being able to innovate and design and problem solve is really, I think, uh, a function of you know, how fat, multifaceted you are as an individual. I mean, can you, you have different experiences. You know, when I was young, like I said, I wasn't the greatest student but I read a lot. I had a lot of exposure to a lot of different ideas and a lot of concepts. So I think that may have helped a little um, when I look at a problem now. I can see more to it than just black and white. So then what is one area that needs innovation or improvement that no one is currently working on? I think education is one area that I think, you know, and it's like I was just talking about, you know, you've got engineers and 
developers and mathematicians, but they're not really engaged in the arts as much as that, that I feel they should be. And, you know, you think about someone like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, who was a scientist, but also was an artist, and he was able to express his ideas in science through his art. So I think that's something I'm, um, I'm not, and I'm not maybe answering your direct question, so what needs innovation, but um, I think the education is, is an area that um, we've, we've become so focused on STEM that I, I had heard someone recently refer to it as STEAM, you know, and so I like that. I mean, it's, it's yeah, we should include the arts in science, technology, engineering, mathematics. I think, I think you make a good point because, you know, right before I went into college, um, you know, there's a really big focus on MBAs. Yeah. And I feel, you know, when I went to college, you know, if you had an MBA, you were almost like guaranteed a $100,000 a year job. Mm -hmm. And now that's not really the case. There's just yeah. so many of them. You can get them anywhere. Yeah. Everybody has them. Yeah. Um, and I kind of worry that that's where... STEM's heading. You know, mm -hmm. there's just going to be so many STEM grads that right. aren't necessarily of a high quality, but they have right. you know that degree. That I, I just worry that you know you have a situation that you're talking about where it's mm -hmm. kind of you know diluted and they don't you know they they have the knowledge but they don't really know how to apply it. Right. Yeah. They they um, and I, I don't want to use like one dimension is really the the way I think about that is you are very good at the scientific knowledge. But you just don't know how to apply it to real-world problems, right? And how, how do you go into a, you know, a lab? Like I would go into dental laboratories, listen to how they are describing their problems to me, and and yeah, well, you know, that workflow doesn't work because of this, you know. And I've I've had enough experiences in my life to see different um, solutions work and not work in different areas. So, so you still live in Gainesville? Still live in Gainesville. Yeah. Um, why? What are the benefits to operating a company with a regional or national reach out of Gainesville? What I used to always tell people is, you know, I love going to the cities. I love going to New York. I love going to Chicago. But I love coming back to Gainesville even more because of the lack of traffic, the lack of, um, you know, just the density and the pace. And so being in Gainesville as long as I have, I have seen it change a little. You know, that's another whole another podcast, probably. You know, the, the traffic issues and everything. But um, traditionally, in the in the past, I I just think Gainesville has a lot to offer in terms of lifestyle. Um, you hear the word cost of living thrown about, but the way I think like to think about that is there's the cost, but does the living actually balance out the cost, right? And is there enough of the living, you know, part to add, you know, value? And and I think Gainesville has a lot of those those qualities. I mean, there, you know, I, I used to be able to drive to my office in 15 minutes, you know, and, and so I, I love that, that idea. If I'd been in a larger city, that commute would take, you know, an hour and a half, two hours sometimes. So, Since you have a number of years of experience in Gainesville-based tech companies, I'm curious if you have any opinions on what, if anything, Gainesville should do to retain and attract entrepreneurs, um, UF STEM grads, you know, get people like that to stay in Gainesville. When I, when I travel and, and someone asks me where I'm from, and I say Gainesville, Florida, oh, the University of Florida. I mean, we, so much of Gainesville's identity is tied up in the university. So when someone is leaving the university, they're not really aware of everything else that goes on around the community. Uh, I've heard stories of people that live in the bubble, right? They live, you know, Midtown to Archer Road. So I think Gainesville, as a community, needs to 
and well, let me put it this way. When you think of Austin or Nashville, what do you think of? You don't, you don't think of bars. Bar. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay. But you don't think of the university of Texas, right? You don't think right. of Vanderbilt, right? So there's something else there. And you know, the music scene in both those cities, the cultural scene, um, I think that is, I'm starting to see that in Gainesville. You think about the South Depot area, you know, all the you know, development going on there. Um, I believe that if a student coming out of Gainesville will recognize all the opportunities, the cultural opportunities, the art scene that's going on here, they may think about Gainesville differently. As it stands, I think they, they just think of their nights in Midtown, you know, and, you know, going downtown occasionally. But they don't, they never come out to the west side of town. They never go up to the east side of town. They never go you know, understand what is really being offered here. Yeah. And I see people fall into that trap that have lived here for, you know, 30 years. Sure. They, um, you know, it's like, oh, you know, they go to Orlando and they're like, oh, there's so much to do down there. There's right. so many great restaurants. And it's, well, you went down to Orlando and you ate at, you know, Bahama Breeze. Yeah, you, you know, exactly. I mean, there's, there's plenty of opportunities, you know, better than that yeah. here even. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think when someone says to me, where are you from? I say Gainesville. Oh, that's where Fest is held, right? Yeah, exactly. It's not just the University of Florida. Right. Once we have those uh, um, those events and those opportunities starting to be more recognized, and I think people will think about Gainesville more than just oh, I went to grad school there, undergrad, and you know, yeah, I really partied in that town. But let's look at it you know, in a broader sense. So. This is another listener question. What is your favorite bar or brewery in Gainesville, and what is the one thing you absolutely should not order there? Um, favorite bar, uh, Madrina's, um, TJ's got a great bar program there and he's, in fact, he's been serving me longer than any other bartender in Gainesville has. Um, and I probably wouldn't order a vodka tonic there. Uh, and once you, if you've been there, you'll know why they have a great cocktail list. And I just think vodka tonics probably, you'll get a sideways glance probably. All right. Final question for you. What motivates you? I think I'm motivated by knowing, I mean, going back to what I said, you know, when I was in the military, whatever work is being placed in front of you, you know, just embrace it. I mean, what's the alternative? I mean, you, you, you need to do work you need to do your job. Um, so I'm motivated about, by doing a job well and sitting back and, and being able to look at that and understand that, well, you know, in my software business, People are going to use this to run their business and you know, you know, grow it and become productive. And I think making sure I put out the best I can put out at the end of the day is is what I'm motivated by. Um, and you know, those who are working with me, um, I, I want to encourage them the same way to just let's do the best we can do because people's livelihoods depend and can and their success can depend on what we're what we're building. And, um, I think that's what motivates me. All right, Andy, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be here.